Let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning with the grateful confidence that we believe you will hold us fast. We thank you for saving grace, the grace that calls us out of sin and darkness, the grace that transforms us and makes us new, and the grace that keeps us and preserves us to the end. We thank you for the grace that, that gives us endurance and secures our faith even in times of testing and trials. Lord, we know that one of the means by which you keep and preserve and strengthen your servants is through the preaching and teaching of the word. So we ask now that you would work in, in the teaching of your word, work today. Do work in our hearts to conform us to the image of your son and to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Lord, we come eager and expectant to receive more of your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of James. Over the next couple months, we're going to be studying through this letter. The book of James is a letter that was written by a man named James. And James was the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. Half-brother because Joseph was James's biological father while he was not Jesus' biological father. We know Jesus was born of a virgin, but they grew up together. But during Jesus' ministry, this man, James, the author of this letter, had been a skeptic. John chapter 7, verse 5 tells us that not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. But all of that changed after the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7 tells us that one of the first people that Jesus appeared to after, after revealing himself in the garden to those early witnesses, one of the first people he appeared to was his brother, James. James met the risen Christ, the Messiah, his brother, face to face, and he was forever changed. He was transformed by that experience. He believed. Early on in the expansion of the church, as we read the book of Acts, especially in chapters 12 and 15, we see that this man, James, the half-brother of Jesus, the former skeptic who's now a believer, becomes a prominent Christian leader who pastored the first church in Jerusalem. And in his opening words of this letter, Notice what James calls himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to James, Jesus was more than just his brother. He was his master and his Messiah, and he was was rejoicing to introduce himself as such. Now, this was likely the earliest book written in the New Testament, So, so put yourself in the shoes of these readers. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And they had the verbal tradition of what Jesus had taught his disciples that was being passed around. But, they know, but they, at this point, they did not have any of the other books in the New Testament. The Gospels had not been written. Paul had not yet put pen to paper. So why does James write this letter? What prompts him as a pastor to, to jot these things down and communicate these things? Well, verse 1 tells us he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he gives them his greetings. James is writing to Christian Jews who are living abroad. Due to persecution in the early church, many members of James's church were now scattered across the Roman Empire. These were sheep in his flock, people he cared for, people he felt responsible for, people he had invested in, but now they were scattered. And they needed a shepherd. They needed direction. And so James writes to stabilize them for the trials that they were facing. 
He writes to correct the doctrinal problems and the, and the moral problems that threatened their spiritual health. And this is why James's writings are so valuable to us today. We need this book. We need it because just like James's first readers, we too face trials. We too struggle with sin. We too need wisdom. We too can easily slip into a, a spoken faith rather than a lived faith. Just like these people, we too need to be pastored. And so James speaks today. He speaks to us. You'll notice as we go through this book that James's teaching is intensely practical. James has a higher frequency of direct commands than any other New Testament book. He's not just telling us what to think and what to believe. James is telling us what to do, giving many specific commands. James's teaching is also very vivid. Just like Jesus, he draws on his surroundings to illustrate the spiritual truths that he's wanting to get across. James speaks of grass and fire, ships and horses, mirrors, salt water and fresh. He uses real-life metaphors and all these little one-liners that stick in our minds and help us to understand his point. In this sense, he really is following the example of Jesus as Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount. And at several points in this book, it's evident that even some of those same ideas from the Sermon on the Mount are very much in James's mind. And he wants to explain them and apply them to his readers. James is also very concise. He likes to make a point and then move on. Maybe some of you wish your pastor were more like that. James moves quickly on to new topics. Unlike some of Paul's letters, Paul will often give an expansive treatment of one singular theme and show how everything sort of weaves together. But James is a little bit different, and in some ways, his letter is more like the Old Testament book of Proverbs, both in its content and in its style. James quotes from Proverbs and places a high value on wisdom and seeks to show us many different areas of life that wisdom touches on. Because of the variety of topics that James addresses, it can be somewhat difficult to find a unifying theme for this book because there's all these smaller sections throughout this book that really can stand on their own. But I do think there is a broad principle that ties all of James's teaching together, and it's this. The point of the book, which is not necessarily the specific point of this sermon, but the point of the book that we'll refer to time and time again is that genuine faith affects all of life. That's his thesis, if you will. That genuine faith will affect all of life. As we walk through this book, we'll see that, it, that faith controls how we respond. It, it controls how we res respond to trials, how we respond to the word, how we respond to other people, and how we respond to the grace of God. We'll see that genuine faith will control what we do, how we use our tongue, how we speak, and how we express wisdom. That genuine faith will control what we love. It will focus our loyalties. It will impact our planning. It will adjust our view of wealth. And that faith will even control how we persevere. That it will sustain personal endurance. That faith will motivate the way we pray. And will even prompt us to intervene with those who are struggling with sin. Maybe James would ask you this morning, what is the one thing that affects everything in your life? What is it that drives your decisions? What is it that it motivates your actions? What is it that controls your responses to the various circumstances in life? What is it that, that, that shapes your values? 
Is it your own desires? Is it maybe your fears? Is it the pressure of circumstances and that instinct we all have for self-preservation? Or is the one thing that affects everything in your life your faith in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ? I think that's the question James would ask us. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for sin, that he rose again, and that all of his promises are true? Because if you do, then no part of your life can remain unaffected. James is not a fan of compartmentalized Christianity. His premise is that if Christ is truly your Lord, then there is only one way to live. A life of genuine faith will be fully submitted to God, fully trusting in his promises, fully committed to the way of wisdom, and will therefore produce good works. James was intent on seeing this kind of faith manifested in the lives of his readers. So right out of the gate in chapter 1, how should this genuine faith affect our lives? Well, James tells us in the opening words of his letter that faith controls how we respond to trials. I want to look at verses 2 through 4 this morning and sort of reflect on what James has to say to us. Let's read our text together. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The fact that James begins the book with this theme, this idea of trials and testing, and the fact that he returns to this theme multiple times in the book indicates that most likely the people he's writing to were facing trials. They were in the middle of difficulty. They were the 12 tribes of the dispersion, according to verse 1. Scattered Jewish believers who were experiencing prejudice as they were now foreigners living in a distant land. They experienced poverty. They experienced even persecution for their faith. James knows they need to be strengthened as they face these trials. All of us know the reality of trials. Some of you in here deal with chronic pain and illness. Many of you have lost jobs. Some of you are just trying to survive a job that you hate. Or maybe the long hours at home with small children. Or the constant grind of financial pressure. Some of you might be in the middle of a painful and difficult marriage. I know some of you have wayward children. Some of you deal with unwanted singleness. The mathematical reality is that half of us who are married will one day bury our spouse. And some of you already have. Many of you have already buried parents. The rest of us will in the future. And some have even buried a child. Or maybe you lost one who was too small for a funeral. This is why James approaches trials not as possible events, but as inevitable experiences of life. He doesn't say if you meet various kinds of trials, but simply when. All you have to do is live long enough and you will suffer. James knows this. And so he starts his letter by exhorting us with this truth, that faith frees us to respond to trials with joy. That's his point in verses 2 through 4, that genuine faith, truly possessed and lived by, frees us to respond to trials with joy. He says, count it all 
joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The word all in this passage is used to intensify the term joy. You could say that it is great joy, or as the NIV translates it, pure joy. That would be a good translation. It's important we note what James is not saying. He's not saying that joy is our only emotional response, as if we somehow enjoy the pain. Because it's not the trial itself that brings us joy. We'll see that in a few minutes. He's not saying that there's no place for grief, that there's no place for sorrow. What he is saying is this, that we should find within difficulty an occasion for true and real joy. Some of you might this morning be saying, joy? Really? Even in my situation? Yes. And brothers and sisters, let me point out to you that James doesn't only hold out this joy as an option for some. If you look at the text with me, James gives it to us as a command to all. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is a command that can only be obeyed when genuine faith is present and lived by. The question we could answer this morning as we walk through the text is this. How is it possible that we can have joy in trials? How does that work? If I want to obey this command, what's that going to take? How do I do that? Two principles I want to share with you this morning. Number one, you can respond with joy when by faith you see the value in trials. You can respond with joy when by faith you see the value in trials. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If we're going to obey this command, if we're going to to have joy in the middle of trials, we have to see the value in them. And to see the value in these trials will require, first of all, some cognitive effort on your part and mine. It requires cognitive effort. Notice that James doesn't simply tell us to feel joyful. He tells us, first of all, how we must think that we must think rightly. He says, count it all joy or consider it joy when you meet trials of various kinds for you know, for you know. You see, rather than, than allowing our thoughts to be at the mercy of our feelings, rather our feelings are to be shaped and guided by our thoughts. He uses the word consider or count it all joy here, urging his readers, urging, urging us to evaluate our circumstances to look specifically at what is happening to us, what's happening around us, and to choose and decide to look upon those things as a reason for joy. He reminds us that tests and trials produce a positive and valuable outcome. It produces steadfastness. This is a truth claim. He says the testing and the trials that you're going through, that you're facing, they have value. They produce something valuable. And that is a truth claim James makes that we are responsible to believe. James uses this truth, the fact that trials produce steadfastness, he uses it as emotional leverage. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. He says, you know that this is true. Therefore, use this truth as emotional leverage. This is a decision to allow your understanding of the truth to affect and govern your heart even in the middle of trials. You know, we really can't control what happens to us, can we? As much as we would like to, as much as some of us try really hard, 
We cannot control and manage our circumstances. And God doesn't expect us to. But we can control and must control how we respond to those trials, to those adversities. And God does expect us to respond to those pressures in faith. This is not a command to simply turn off our emotions. It's rather a command to guide our emotions into truth so that we rightly feel what we ought to feel in the middle of trials. What James knows as a wise pastor is that it is essential when you and I face difficulty, various kinds of trials, whatever you may be facing, it's essential that we believe there's value in it. That's faith, to believe there is value in our trials. Don't let unbelief rob you of the comfort that comes when you know what you're going through matters, that it's meaningful, that it has value, that it has purpose. To obey this command of counting it all joy requires that we discipline our minds to think according to the truth, that we know that God is doing something valuable, and that we believe in what God says. The Apostle Paul also makes this connection between knowing and between joy in Romans chapter 5. Verse 3, he says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Paul has the same logic. We rejoice even in the middle of pain, even in the middle of sufferings, because we know something that's true, and we believe that it's true. And that truth provides us with the emotional leverage to have joy even in the middle of sorrow and suffering. Scripture describes our trials not as senseless tragedies, but as tests of our faith that produce a valuable outcome. And James exhorts us, consider it all joy because we know that this is true, that God is doing something valuable. This is really the outworking of our faith, isn't it? Genuine faith, real faith. A faith that believes God is at work and a faith that rests in the knowledge that this adversity that my sovereign and all-wise and all-loving God has brought into my life, that this adversity is valuable. Valuing trials will take cognitive effort. It starts with right thinking, disciplined thoughts to guide our hearts with the truth of God's word, but it also is going to require some spiritual sensitivity. It's not just that we have to think the right way. To value trials will require spiritual sensitivity on on our part because you can know that this is true, that God's doing something valuable, that trials strengthen us, and you can be spiritually insensitive to that truth. It's sadly very easy for many of us to value our comfort more than we value our holiness. We want ease more than we want spiritual maturity. We desire rest more than we desire to be Christ-like. And because of this, we tend to kick against anything that's painful, don't we? We don't want to experience anything uncomfortable because we're a little bit oblivious to the fact that God wants to accomplish something in our hearts. It's easy for us to lose sight of the goal and to forget that God's purpose is to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's not that, men, that we don't pray or try to trust God in the middle of our trials. I think a lot of us do. But think about it. Isn't our goal often simply to escape the pressure? God, I'm looking to you and I'm praying to you so that you'll get me out of this situation. And we're often spiritually insensitive to what God may be wanting to do in us in the middle of our difficulty. Valuing trials requires spiritual sensitivity. 
It requires that our heart be submitted to God's purposes. It's one thing to know that God has good purposes for us in our trials. It's another thing to submit to that and to embrace that and to receive that. Genuine faith will value what God values. It will cause us to desire what he desires. And he desires that we become holy and mature and Christ-like and stronger in our faith. Have you ever seen that God is doing something in your life? You've been going through trial or difficulty and you've maybe prayed or thought, yes, God, I know that this is good for me, but I don't want it right now. I've been there. Sometimes that's how it feels. But friends, this is not the path to joy. And if we stay there, we won't be able to have joy in the midst of our trials A heart that is spiritually insensitive and not submitted to God's purposes, this kind of heart will not be able to have joy in the middle of the trial. But if you have this spiritual sensitivity, submitted to God's purposes, trusting in him, receiving what he gives, desiring in yourself what he desires in yourself, then you will embrace these trials because you'll realize God is sending these trials to focus my wandering eyes on Christ and to grow me, and that's something I want as well. When that's what you want, and you see that that's what God is doing, then you can endure adversity and have joy, even in the middle of your trials. Faith frees us to respond to trials with joy, because by faith we see the value in trials, and by faith we value what God is doing. We think rightly, and we're spiritually sensitive to what God is seeking to do. There's a second principle this morning. Not only can we respond with joy when by faith we see the value in trials, but also when by faith we see the purpose in our trials. We've referred to this purpose, but not explained it. James explains it for us at the end of verse 3 and end of verse 4. Verse 3, he says that we can count it joy, for we know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is the purpose of our trials? Why is it that they're so valuable? James tells us. First of all, these trials produce a positive result in that they give us or produce in us steadfastness. They produce this positive result of steadfastness. That's the purpose of trials. Now, when I was studying through this, this is years ago even, thinking about this, chewing on this, this almost seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? That somehow our faith being challenged and our faith being tested, that 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 would produce steadfastness because it seems like trials would threaten that, doesn't it? It seems like our our, our faith being burdened and tested and stretched would put our faith in jeopardy. That somehow that could undermine our faith or weaken our faith or destroy our faith. We tend to see trouble as the enemy of faith. But God tells us here in the book of James that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And it's not just physical endurance. It's not even emotional steadfastness or mental steadfastness and toughness. James is talking about spiritual endurance. That the testing of our faith actually strengthens our faith. You say, how does that work? How does testing produce endurance? Well, I think it does it in two ways. By first of all, pushing us closer to God by necessity. And then secondly, by proving the faithfulness of God. I mean, think about this. Doesn't adversity bring us to a point of desperation? 
It does for me. When you get tested, when you're at your wit's end, when you're at the end of your resources, at the end of your strength, at the end of your knowledge, you see that, that you're hopeless unless God does something. And so we seek him desperately. We draw near to him. Difficulty exposes our weakness. It crushes our self-reliance. And it forces us to either respond in faith or break. That's how adversity strengthens our faith because it pushes us closer to God. You can't stay neutral in the middle of a trial. You find yourself in need of a help that only God can provide. And if you, like me, are tempted to often find strength or hope or comfort or safety or security or peace in something outside of God, trials will very quickly show you that none of those other things can deliver. And then you find yourself saying, God, it's you or nothing. If you don't help me now, then I'm done. That strengthens our faith because it pushes us closer to God. And you know what happens when we draw near to God in that kind of faith? It anchors our faith even deeper in him because we become further convinced of God's faithfulness. Because as we draw near to him, as we cry out to him in desperation, as we lean on him and abandon any other hope, any other comfort, any other resource, you know what we experience? The faithfulness of God. That he always keeps his promises. That he's always good. That he's always sufficient. We experience his grace made perfect in our weakness. That's why Paul could rejoice in his sufferings. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he, he repeats something that God revealed to him in saying that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know how Paul responds to that? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, when you trust God, you find that he is infinitely trustworthy. When you depend on God, you discover just how dependable that he is. When you rely on him, you experience his strength to a degree and at a level that perhaps you've never experienced before. As the hymn writer Louisa Stead wrote around the turn of the 20th century, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. She's proven him. How? By trusting him. When you trust him, you see his faithfulness proven again and again. As we trust more deeply in God, he shows us how worthy of our faith and our trust that he is. And this together results in a stronger faith. Trials push us closer to God, and then they prove the faithfulness of God. And this deepens and strengthens our faith in him. It actually increases our capacity to endure trials that are coming in the future. I can face tomorrow's trials because I experienced yesterday's grace. I saw how faithful God is. And friends, this is an incredible source of joy to know that the pain you may be experiencing and the tiring burden that you are carrying or the massive disappointment that you're dealing with, to know that that is actually purposeful, that it's meant to make your faith strong. That will keep you from despair. And it will free you to respond in joy even though the trial isn't over yet. Even though the pain hasn't necessarily gone away. The world is always asking why when difficulty strikes. Why? Why me? Why now? But we know why difficulty is allowed into our lives. Don't we? 
we know its purpose. We know its value. We know that it results in our growth, that it produces steadfastness. We can respond with joy to our trials when we see the purpose in trials, that they produce this positive result that James calls steadfastness or endurance. But secondly, these trials not only provide or produce a positive result, they also meet a desperate need. Look at verse 4. And let this steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word perfect here that James uses doesn't mean sinless. This doesn't mean that if you go through enough trials and have enough endurance, you'll never sin again. He's not talking about moral perfection in that sense. This word means whole. It means, it means um, complete. It's actually paired with another word that's translated complete. Perfect and complete. These are synonyms that we reach the goal of maturity. It's interesting to see the word play that James uses here. In the Greek text, the word for full when he says, let steadfastness have its full effect, and that word for uh, um, perfect, it's actually the same word in the Greek language, just kind of tweaked a little bit. When steadfastness has its teleon effect, you will become teleoi. Or to give it sort of an English flavor, when endurance has its full effect, you will come full circle. Or you could say, when steadfastness is finished with you, you will be the final product. You see, God wants to produce spiritual endurance in us so that he can bring us all the way to completion, to spiritual maturity. The Christian life is one of ongoing transformation. And friends, it is a marathon. It's a marathon. A brittle, weak faith will not last. It won't reach the finish line. We need endurance. We need it so that we can reach the goal of becoming spiritually mature and complete and whole. We see this illustrated very simply even in the world around us. When an athlete trains, some of you have done this, you put your body through pain. When you run, when you lift weights, you're pushing your body to the limit if you're doing it rightly. And then as you train, as you push yourself to the limit, as you go all the way to the point of muscle tissue breaking down and the capacity of your lungs being painfully expanded, when that happens and you hit those limits again and again, what happens is your limits actually change. You're able to run faster or farther. You're able to lift more. You're able to jump higher, able to hit harder. But if you quit during the pain of training, if you quit because it doesn't feel good, then that will guarantee you will stay weak, you will never change, you'll never get stronger, and you won't have what it takes to finish the competition. Friends, endurance, spiritual endurance, the endurance of faith is essential for the Christian life. Hebrews 10.36 says that you have need of endurance. This is the same word. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The author of Hebrews pointing at the finish line, pointing at the reception of the crown, pointing to the reception of the verdict, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, you have need of endurance so that you can make it to the finish line. What this shows us is that this endurance that God is producing in us through trials, it's not just mildly beneficial. Like, yeah, I'd like to be one of those people who has a lot of endurance, it's not just mildly beneficial. It's absolutely necessary. It's not optional. It is essential. 
If we don't experience these trials, then we will be destitute of the endurance that we need. And we will actually be deprived and lacking. Look at verse 4. We could flip this around and, and read it negatively. If you don't have steadfastness, and if that steadfastness doesn't produce its full effect, then you will not be whole or perfect. You will be incomplete. And you will be lacking many things. Friends, this is why steadfast endurance is so important. Because we have to stay in the battle. This endurance keeps us from quitting and allows us to experience the growth that comes through the pain of difficulty. And friends, this is a cause of joy. James points to this and says, because you know that this is true, because this is what God is doing in you, you should be able to rejoice in the middle of your trials. James encourages us to embrace this process. So, do, so too does the Apostle Peter. Carrie read this this morning in Sunday school. I'll read it again. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-8. through eight. Peter writes, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, there's our word, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter also knows that if it were not for this this pattern of growth, adding one thing to another as we could become more mature, more grounded, stronger in our faith, if that doesn't happen, we will be incomplete, we will be immature, we'll be partially developed, and we will risk, according to 2 Peter, becoming ineffective and unfruitful. If that describes us, an untested faith, that's not growing and deepening and becoming stronger, becoming, leading us to more and more maturity, then this kind of faith will have less of a transforming effect on our lives and it will have less of an appeal to the world. We'll end up becoming dim lights and tasteless salt in a world that is dark and decaying. You see, God uses trials to make us what we need to be and to build our faith and endurance to preserve our souls to the end. I will even go so far as to say this, that Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith, that one of the means by which he keeps us is by preserving and deepening our faith. Those who are truly saved, those who belong to Christ, will never be lost. He keeps us. But one of the ways he does this is by deepening, strengthening, and preserving our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 says that by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, the testing and the strengthening and the deepening of our faith is not just optional. It's not just mildly beneficial. It's essential. It's essential. And it is God's purpose for us. This is God's purpose in our trials. We can rejoice in the middle of our trials when by faith we see the value in our trials and we see the purpose in our trials. We see what God is doing. So let me ask you today, how are you responding to trials? Is there joy? Is there joy? Not joy exclusively over and against sorrow or groaning, but is there real joy even in the middle of those things? 
to those of you who may be facing trials today and you feel swallowed up in discouragement and grief, I want to invite you to come and believe, to respond today with faith. Exchange your fear and your doubt for a deeper faith in Christ. When you murmur and complain in the middle of your trials, you're showing that you don't value God's plan to to accomplish your good and his glory through your pain. And you're showing that you don't believe that he knows what is best and he's actually working to strengthen you and mature you and perfect you. Friends, if we respond that way, that is at best weak faith and at worst dead faith. James will later talk about a kind of faith in the book of James that has no power to save. A faith that is not genuine. A faith that is not real. If you have no true faith in Christ, and if today God is revealing to you that you need real faith, that you've never looked to him like this before, then I urge you to cry out like the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. He beat his chest and hung his head and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the prayer of faith, and it's where it all starts. You need the kind of faith today, if that describes you, you need the kind of faith that looks to the cross for salvation. Because then and only then will you be reconciled to God and in a position to look to him as you run the race, in a position to receive his strength and his grace to help you persevere. But first and foremost, you need to know him. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to be born again. If you have a dead faith that cannot save, come to Christ today and believe. If you are his child today, but perhaps you feel your weakness and you see that your faith needs to grow and that you are in need of change, then I would invite you to cry out like the father in Mark chapter 9 who said, I believe, help my unbelief. God, our father, is gracious. He is patient. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love and he desires to purify your faith and to strengthen your faith and to deepen your faith and to mature your faith. So open your heart today to his spirit and allow him to take these truths that we've seen in this text and to change you. Commit yourself today to embrace the value and the purpose of trials with joy, to fight for faith in these promises, in these truths. James will continue this theme of testing throughout chapter 1. I want you to look down at verse 12, because here's how he concludes this section on trials and testing. Verse 12, he writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the good news And the hope for those of us who know Christ. That no matter what happens, no matter what trial comes, God has promised that all who are truly in his son, all who endure to the end, that we will receive the crown of eternal life. And this truth overshadows any trial we may face. No matter how massive our losses may seem in this life. There is a crown and a reward coming. A joy coming that is worth it. It is worth it. And it is coming, and we can look to that with hope, with expectancy. This is a gift that has been bought 
with the blood of our Savior. Let's never ignore it or forget it. Let's stop, let's, let's stop looking for our reward and our ultimate joy in the here and now and look to the finish line to what God has promised and strive for that and keep running the race towards our Savior, trusting in his purposes, trusting in his promises, submitting to what he wants to do in us. May the Holy Spirit enable us today to see in God's word through eyes of faith his good and gracious purposes so that as we face trials and tests, we will be able to count it, consider it all joy. God, as we look in your word today, we ask that you would help us to believe the truths that we've seen. Strengthen our faith. God, I ask that if there are those among us today who have felt the conviction of your Holy Spirit, if their unbelief, their worldly perspective has perhaps been exposed, I ask God that you would meet them with your grace. I ask God that you would enable them to look to Christ and to hope in him. Lord, we know that our afflictions are good because they push us closer to you. And they bring us to a point of experiencing your faithfulness and your grace in deeper ways than we ever have before. Lord, forgive us for making an idol out of comfort and ease. Forgive us for often being spiritually insensitive to what you want to do in us. Pray that you would give forgiving grace to us today. And Lord, we also ask for the grace that strengthens us to endure. Lord, we believe. We believe that you're good and that what you're doing is good. But we pray that you would help our unbelief. Help us in those moments of despair or doubt to remember your promises, to remember what's true, and to choose to bring our thoughts and our emotions underneath the authority of your word. I pray, God, that you would grant us real joy, even in the midst of our sufferings, a joy that will glorify you, a joy that will shine brightly as a testimony in this world and a joy that will strengthen us to continue running the race. Lord, our desire is to live a life of genuine faith, that our faith would touch every response, every attitude, every desire, every action. We pray that you would grow us and change us into the image of your Son, by your grace and for your glory. Amen.